Welcome to the next episode of American Filmmaker. On this episode, we are going to talk to a hemp farmer. We are going to bring you to the front lines of hemp farming in America with a friend, Andrew. I met Andrew when I was doing research on a feature script. I took a job at a dispensary and me and him ended up working together as trimmers. I was there to kind of write a story about two trimmers who go to trim for a drug addled grower in the mountains and the grower tries to rape the girl trimmer and then the guy trimmer has to kind of come to her aid and then the two of them end up killing this marijuana grower in the mountains and then they end up chopping up his body and disposing of it and then they find his money and his drugs and they get away. And so I used this job at the dispensary to research this script and that's where I met Andrew. Years would pass and then me and him would reconnect to start to work on a project which was a consumer reports for hemp products called Tortoise Mountain. It's a website and an Instagram channel where we do video reviews and written reviews for hemp products. Welcome to American Filmmaker, Andrew. Yeah, glad to be here. Uh, glad we're not sitting around the old trim tables anymore. That, <laughs> yeah. was a, that was a fun honeymoon there for about a month or so, and then it got real. <laughs> yeah. But the advantage of being a trimmer was to be able to go to all the different warehouses and talk to all the different growers and be able to ask questions and learn from everybody's techniques. And because uh, despite what everybody says, there's multiple ways to do it. And, you know, a lot of marijuana growers will tell you that their way is the best, but uh, it's a combination of, of all the techniques to get it right. Yeah. And Andrew really said it right. We kind of started working in the golden era of medical marijuana that started in Colorado about seven years ago, maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, I remember I voted for the first time uh, electing President Obama for re-election and for passing, was it Amendment 64? Yeah, yeah, Amendment 64, where the medical marijuana program became a recreational program. And so there's a whole other economy that exists in Colorado and the state can actually pull tax dollars from we started when there were no really standard operating procedures and there were no machines to trim marijuana. And so it was all hand-based labor. I came from Illinois and I was a filmmaker. And so this was a way for me to just focus on research. And so I would show up for, man, maybe two or three years and then just learn how to trim all kinds of different strains of marijuana. And so I guess my question is a little bit, Andrew, before we start on kind of the hemp farming experience, uh, where are you from? How did you come to Colorado? And then I guess, how did you learn how to grow marijuana? I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. I was in my senior year at Auburn University and I came out to Denver for a New Year's show at the Fillmore. I kind of just fell in love with Boulder and the Denver metro area and I decided after that trip in January that after I graduated in May, I was going to come to Colorado and I had a job lined up, theoretically, at a greenhouse to be growing tomatoes and produce. That kind of fell through, so I ended up trying to get into the music scene and I ended up doing an internship at the Fox and Boulder Theater. I made some connections through some of that and got a job at the dispensary. The farm. I don't know if I should say that or not. I guess it matters. 
No, no, no. Let us talk about it. I think uh, we worked at, Andrew and I met at the dispensary of the farm in Boulder, Colorado, when the farm had one store on 17th and Walnut, which then they had to move and they actually bought a piece of property. And then they kind of expanded into a lot bigger operation. And then oddly enough, that dispensary became the offices for our governor now, Jared Polis. And when I was couch surfing, when I first got here, I was staying a block away from that store. <laughs> so it's a small world here in Boulder. So so once you got the job at the farm, did you realize that you would be able to grow marijuana or just talk about that process of like moving from a trimmer to like marijuana? Uh, well, the issue was that I was really good at trimming and had a lot of good ideas. So they kind of tried to keep me at the trim table for a little bit longer than... I would have liked, but uh, eventually my talent was noticed because I started basically growing at home and bringing in my homegrown, and that kind of got the respect of some of the growers. And so after about my third interview, they decided to move me up to full-time grower. I spent about a good year just growing and doubling the production numbers and just learning, I was actually getting to do a lot of experimenting. How many lights did you get a chance to run or like how many warehouses or like for everybody who like is a grower out there, you know, just? Around about 70,000 watt lights because there were seven different rooms and it was eight to 10 lights. And then, you know, that was just the flowering section. So we had a pretty massive veg too uh, to be able to feed all those rooms. But yeah, it was, it was cool. I, I like that setup. It was small batch, so I definitely can appreciate that. And then just a nice little thing is that practice that you got at home. Do you think that would be good advice for people who, you know, either medical patients who like might want to get a job in the industry or like just learn how to grow cannabis yourself and then that might provide a job later? That's a, that's a tough question because growing in your house can destroy your house and you can get black mold within two years just because of the humidity and constant humidity and water being everywhere. Um, I would recommend it if you have a really good controlled environment in a basement or something. I think it is a good way to learn, but uh, you don't want to ruin your house or really anybody's house. But it is a, an interesting way to learn, and then you have to scale up. I appreciated the commercial setting because it's really controlled. It's kind of like the Olympics. Like you basically have everything you need because they want to make sure that the product gets to the shelf. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's kind of like training <laughs> at the Olympic facility. And then, yeah, when you're uh, when you get to the consulting level, that's kind of the the real Olympics per se, I suppose. How long did you grow for? And then how did all of that help you when you started to grow hemp? Well, I actually started growing vegetables in college at least 10 years ago. And that was actually a really good experience learning stuff out in the field. And if you can grow vegetables, then you can take a lot of that knowledge and apply it to cannabis. So I guess I've been growing plants for about 12 years and then growing cannabis for seven years. 
I liked growing commercially cannabis, but uh, it was a little soul sucking. I, it's it's hard to be pulling down twenty five thousand dollar rooms every week and be making thirty thousand dollars a year. Uh, so that was a little frustrating, but you know, there was some good benefits and I got to learn a lot, but, uh, I left the cannabis field when I was going through some changes in my personal life, trying to, uh, quit drinking alcohol and stuff. And that atmosphere can definitely promote and just being in Colorado, we have so many breweries and so many great, great beers. It ran its course and I'm, I'm definitely glad to be alcohol free for three and a half years now that's awesome i definitely appreciate that yeah yeah it's uh it's definitely helped me achieve more of my goals yeah and then you also started meditating too because i remember we started seeing each other up on pearl street at the trident cafe and then you would come from shambhala and then go back to the young sangha meditation is definitely a really good good tool to use. Meditation is a really good tool to use. Um, at least meditation is a really good tool to use. It, it really helps with so many different things. It's hard to say exactly what it is that it makes you good at, but it definitely teaches you patience and to understand your feelings and not reject them. So uh, it's a very useful tool and it's a really good practice. I definitely feel that one of the things that keeps me here in Boulder is this availability of spiritual classes and and spiritual exercises and spiritual activities, such as going to a free meditation every week at the Shambhala Center. Or in my case, I really enjoy the Tai Chi classes. So the Tai Chi classes really help kind of keep me focused. I go about two times a week. And then I practice, hopefully, if I'm lucky, on the weekend. And that really keeps my creativity and my work focus pretty on on point, I guess. And then I think as a creative person, along with you, with the music and also the uh, growing, because I think gardening and growing is definitely one of the creative arts that humans can do. Um, I feel like having something to rejuvenate yourself is needed, especially if you are going to go on the journey to either be an American filmmaker, an American writer, an American hemp grower. Yeah, I mean, hobbies are very important to keep you focused on something. I mean, if you're just sitting around thinking about how to get ahead, it, uh, it's a tough world out there, and, and the hobbies definitely help. I think I would like to get in more into the Tai Chi. I could see the um, connection of mind and body there a little bit more where... Meditation is uh, mostly just mind, brain uh, training. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just happy with people who are constantly trying to learn new things and like the spiritual arts, as I've come to understand as an adult, are a very real thing. We can either choose to accept that or we can kind of live in a very dumb world. And the stories, even from the major studios right now, they have to embrace a larger spiritual realm because the supernatural elements of the comic books, some of the locations, some of the cultures that you see within these large-scale comic book movies, all that comes from the deeper realm of being human. And I think those things all lie within this culture of spirituality for all these different types of humans. 
And so getting back to hemp, um, what what hemp company are you working for? What is that like? Because, I mean, you get to spend so much time with so many plants. And so that's a whole other level of uh, spiritual achievement in uh, my mind. Yeah, I think uh, when we started the Tortoise Mountain Project, that kind of brought me to checking out a bunch of different hemp companies and trying to understand where everybody was coming from. And uh, fortunately, I was able to pair with Pure Hemp Technology, um, an affiliate of Pure Kind Botanicals, and uh, I created my consulting business, Environmental Farming Solutions. You can always get in contact with me through contacting Pure Hemp Technology. It's been really, really beneficial partnership because some of the, the technologies that Pure Hemp Technology has is really great and I think it's going to be great for humanity and changing the way that we do and make a lot of products. A lot of, a lot of the things that we use every day could be made from hemp and that's really key to turning around our economy and getting off of oil. I'm definitely a fanboy of Pure Hemp Technology and Pure Kind Botanicals. The team over there is extremely scientific and their processes are very driven towards quality of end product and delivering the benefits of the hemp plant to the consumers in the best way. And, you know, having seen and tasted a lot of different products helping out with Tortoise Mountain and all the reviews, I think we've reviewed over a 100 hemp companies and a 100 different hemp products and then trying to present their effects from a consumer standpoint and what the end result is and value for someone who like might have to pay $200 for a 1500 milligram bottle. And for me, Pure Hemp Technology is definitely one of those standout companies. What kind of things have you started to uh, do for them? So I've gotten linked into a couple of deals with uh, doing some consulting in Virginia, trying to get project going there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to be working on our own genetics. I kind of noticed a really big need for good hemp clones because last year uh, there was a lot of clones sold that were really not healthy and dirty, uh, having spider mites and other issues. So it's been really good. And now we are vertically integrated in that we're going to produce our own clones this year and we should be coming out with some feminized seed uh, hopefully for the season this year. Um, I'm going to run that seed and make sure that it does not hermaphrodite because there's another problem we saw a lot last year is uh, getting feminized seed and it's a huge problem in Colorado and everywhere. Feminized seed coming out being 50% male and 50% female does not mean it's very good feminized seed. And so, uh, you know, everybody should be out there doing their homework before they spend thousands or hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of dollars on feminized seed. And it's a tough thing. And then the focus of the hemp that Pure Hemp Technologies is growing, is it the CBD variety or is it any of the food and the fiber variety? Uh, right now, we're just focusing on the CBD varieties. A lot of the genetics for fiber and grain come from Canada, and a lot of those people don't like you taking their genetics and messing with them. They want to keep them pure, and uh, it's a, it's a di whole, whole different can of worms on the fiber and grain side. 
Yeah, and then I think there's even measures in place that the U.S. government is doing, like the DEA, even though you might have a valid import permit, they will not allow you to import the seed. They will just say, yeah, please go ahead, import the seed, and we'll stop it at the border, and we'll just hold it in customs indefinitely. And so I think there was, uh, over the course of shooting this hemp documentary, I heard about a university on the western slope, and they had applied for the importation permit, and then they actually got it, but they received their seed a while after. So seed and even the genetics to start is actually a really, really hard challenge for people who want to start hemp farming. Yeah, and I mean, you never know where that seed came from and what it's going to do. Uh, I mean, each seed is technically its own phenotype, so you never know. There's wide variations between phenotypes, and uh, it's important to know where that pollen came from that's, that made that seed. So with the clones, can you ship them out of state? Or like if I'm in, for example, Illinois, where I'm from, and strangely enough, the college in my hometown, Carbondale, Illinois, they've created a hemp and cannabis agriculture program just because that's kind of the history of their university they're kind of a farm region and so they're heavily invested in agricultural technology how does that work or like is that a gray area or like is that something where yeah people should be able to get the genetics wherever they kind of want because i feel like i read the industrial farm bill and i read the exact details and within the exact details it it made it seem that if I'm trying to grow hemp in Carbondale, Illinois, and there is a pilot program, as long as I have the right paperwork, I can basically send the hemp genetics there. And that anybody between those two locations is supposed to just not worry about it because hemp is now a legal crop. I'm a filmmaker, so I always put the most ideal situation forward first and if the legislation changes then I'm like overnight it should be applied nationally and so that's that's where I come from you know but I know that you are you know on the front lines with a company that's spent so much money in technology and building this foundation for a very long-term play to help build a national hemp industry and so I'm wondering how do you guys deal with it so my advice on importing or exporting clones would be to make sure that you are registered as a hemp grower in the states or an agent of the state so that you're protected and possibly contact a lawyer about that because it it should be fine but you never know uh and always keep uh, put a COA, a copy of the certificate of analysis, with the clones that you would send. Uh, that would be the best advice that I could give. Um, but yeah, reading the farm bill, it it seems like you should be able to just drive clones anywhere. Um, that's that's the way it reads to me. But you know, the the gray areas surrounding new legislation is always interesting for the citizens having to live it, huh? Yeah, and, you know, I mean, a lot of these 
you never know if a state patrolman has read the farm bill and doesn't want to take your clones and hold you in jail because yeah. he thinks they're cannabis or marijuana. And The Kansas State Police did not get the memo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, in theory, we should be able to drive hemp everywhere and people should be able to get high CBD hemp flour everywhere, but it might take a little while before it's... Uh, easy to do that and you don't have to be you could be carefree when i read the farm bill the other thing that stood out was kind of where they put the flour versus the extracts of cbd and the flour as the raw commodity the hemp coming out of the field just harvested is now seeming to be safer to transport in between states and then processing it at a FDA approved facility or like at a facility that is licensed by the state that you're in. Yeah, again. Yeah, uh, and then you want to put that certificate of analysis on the top and maybe even your license because you know, if somebody just opens a big box that's got 10 pounds of vacuum sealed hemp buds in it, that doesn't look very legal in some of the states but most of the states nowadays 33 states now have a medical program so we're we're getting closer we're getting closer to to freedom in that aspect you bring up a good point with the medical some of the hemp now is being grown for smoking varieties can can you talk about maybe why that's happening because like tennessee or anything like that uh, well, I can say that I was on a phone call with some people in North Carolina, and people there like it. People there buying it all day at prices that would probably be higher than marijuana in Colorado. So, uh, I mean, I think that there's probably some relief that's coming from it. I mean, I don't think that all of it could be... Uh, placebo placebo effect i mean it a lot of it tastes good and it's calming i tried a bunch that uh i've definitely smoked some hemp yeah why not i mean it looks great tastes great i smoked one variety that definitely was very nice it was very relaxing and then i smoked another variety that that was nice too it was a little more energizing um but it was very i was pleased with the effects of the hemp but I made sure to select the finest hemp that I had seen before I was like, let me try to smoke this hemp. Sure, sure. I mean, uh, it's definitely more appealing looking than tobacco to me. I mean, just look at it, even if it is some that got frostburned and it's a little brown or darker green. Still seems like a viable tobacco alternative. I mean. So from from what I'm hearing, it sounds like you're kind of – the genetics and the director of grow operations or head of grow operations or manager of grow operating. And then is that because during the winter you have to get all the genetics ready and then however many genetics you have, then you can sell and then you can plant just depending on your individual need. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, uh, always looking for the next, best thing um you never know what genetics you're gonna have uh, until you start popping some of those seeds and flowering them out and doing the testing on them and seeing what you got and hopefully we'll find some strains that are pretty resilient because it's uh it's tough 
here in Colorado, there's a lot of a lot of environmental factors. We get a lot of hail here on the Front Range. Uh, we get early frosts. Flooding is a problem, apparently, <laughs> even though we're in a desert. <laughs> uh, you're just always looking for a strain that has really good flavor and grows really fast and well and produces nice big buds that can make really great CBD. And, you know, we're... I don't. How many cannabinoids have been uh, identified now? Like maybe twenty or so. Yeah, twenty or so that they can test for, but there's definitely over a hundred. Yeah, uh, like I don't know exact numbers, and there's then I know at least the sun. Yeah, and then when you grow, when you grow any variety of cannabis outside in into the sun, just that quality of light increases a lot of cannabinoids and like other naturally occurring goodness. Yeah, you get some of these uh, red buds or red calyxes that you've been. You see a lot on people's websites, <laughs> pictures of that because it's really pretty. And it's actually something you don't usually see indoors because you need UV light, but it's interesting. I got a chance to go visit Andrew at his farm during the season, and I did a little freelance work for Evo Hemp Media. And I got to film Andrew throughout the season. I got to film Andrew planting with his team and also growing throughout the season and then harvesting. We got a really good interview with one of the founders, Ed, as he was pulling a lot of the cut plants into the truck, getting ready to take them back. I think they're on the Evo Hemp website. They also might be on the Pure Kind Botanicals Facebook or Instagram, but that is some of Andrew's wonderful work. And then he's got some nice interview quotes on there as well. It's cool that we had, it's like a before and after. You get the full time-lapse effect really quickly through all those interviews. And you can kind of see from the beginning to the end what they look like, what the plants look like, and uh, maybe a little bit of advice mixed in there with uh, some common sense. And, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a fun project, and it was a great farm. It was, it was a good year. What are some of the headaches that hemp farmers might face? Uh, I guess the top three would be making sure that your clones are sourced from a valid good source and finding any information out about when the flowers should be pulled down. That's always uh, helpful because you don't want to let them stay up too long and uh, making sure you're doing some testing on those flowers to see where your cannabinoid levels are. We're getting into a time where there's a little bit more strictness with the THC. Uh, I'm not sure how that's going to go down this year and how each different state handles it. What is the current law on THC, or is it, did the testing start as testing one form of THC and then it changed to another form of THC? Or I guess what is, can you talk about testing in a, a little more detail? Every state does it a little bit differently, and... I think we need to talk to some of these people that are involved in the politics of how it is tested and make sure that we can write some letters to congressmen and senators and make sure that they're looking out for the farmer's best interest because how those laws are written with testing can really, really make or break somebody's year. And sometimes people have really, I mean, they have a lot on the line. They have their livelihood, they have their savings, they have their farm. And it's not cheap to be. It's not cheap to be a hemp farmer. I mean, I would say 
if you're going to be a hemp farmer, you probably need to have 20 to 50 grand in assets or, I mean, thankfully now you could get a loan, but then that's, that's another high stakes game. Uh, Is that for just one acre? I mean, I think you can get away with five to $10,000 for one acre, but you're going to be doing a lot of labor manually, but you know, renting a planter is a big factor and buying clones or buying really good seeds. Those are not cheap. Uh, How much are clones and uh, seeds going for? I mean, for feminized seed, we're seeing prices around a dollar a seed sometimes. Maybe on, maybe that's the middle to high end, but not sure. Uh, clones, clones can go from three to ten dollars a piece. I've seen people asking for twelve dollars a piece for clones and all the way up. Like, is 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 there a, a price break or no? It's just all the way up. I mean, it just depends on where they're coming from. But, you know, generally there's people that are flexible and, you know, there's the option to partner with uh, your clone provider, which is a a pretty viable option because I don't know too many people that have, you know, if you were trying to grow 20 acres, I don't know that too many people that have $100,000 to throw down on clones. I mean, for a small farmer, that's that's a... (laughs) That's a light, half a lifetimes of earnings and savings. So uh, it's just best to explore all the options on on how you go about it. Uh, feminized seed is is a possibility, but you should have probably started those last month or so. If you're going to be trying to plant some feminized seed this year, might be a little bit behind on it uh, here in January 20, 2019. But uh, yeah, it's it's not the cheapest easiest thing to grow uh but their the payoff should be pretty good as i've been filming the hemp industry over the last year i've heard a lot of different conspiracy theories and i've seen a lot of different snake oil salesmen and i've seen a lot of good people and so it's it's a mixed bag all around and so i'm curious is there a way that we can talk about maybe the hemp conspiracy theories or like the crazy things that you've seen that could be true. They could not be true or they could just be a great legend or it could just be this good story of this new industry. That's just starting to grow as hemp has become federally legal. Yeah. I mean, I think it's good to point out that, uh, the government has been trying to stop gorilla growing of marijuana for, I don't know, the 50s 40s yeah a while now and really it's done some nasty things with uh spreading mold and spores and stuff into into the forests which is definitely i i don't approve of that as an environmentalist but uh just having some male hemp plants around should really uh knock back gorilla growers a little bit there's going to be some seeds that pop up in people's crops if hemp is grown in northern california or oregon which it's definitely being grown in oregon california is a little different but i've definitely heard that happen out here in colorado where hemp growers on the western slope were growing bigger fields of hemp and that was pollinating greenhouse marijuana grows and even some indoor marijuana grows and so the marijuana growers got upset and they just 
took a whole bunch of marijuana seeds and then they just threw them into the hemp fields just so that the hemp would eventually test hot. Wow, I haven't heard that one yet. That's a... <laughs> it's that's some a, rogue, rogue, wild, wild western slope stories. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty extreme. Hopefully, nobody's doing that anymore. That's a uh, that's a that's a weird retaliation and tough on both industries. Uh, you just got to get a HEPA filter on your indoor grow or greenhouse. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And then I'm sure a lot of those growers might have even been black market or licensed medical marijuana grows. Yeah, this is a little bit of an epiphany. I feel like uh, we had probably talked about uh, the male pollen being an issue back in 2013, 2014, and now, lo and behold, there's male pollen hemp everywhere. And the variations of how far that pollen can fly, because cannabis is a wind pollinator, I've heard uh, a mile to 400 miles, so... I feel like it's probably at least 150, 200 miles. So. And another exciting thing about the pollen, just spinning it out, now we'll go positive pollen stories. The bees have started to get healthier in Colorado because of the hemp pollen as an additional food source. That's a new one for me. I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. I, I have... I, I hope they can eat it. I like bees. Yeah, CBD. <laughs> CBD. <laughs> CBD. I do think that there is a benefit of hemp being grown and that you can't be spraying it with nasty pesticides like you do corn. Yeah, uh, that's, that's true. That's not that's not kosher and that's not cool with the Colorado Department of Agriculture. There is a list of what you can and can't spray on hemp. And that should help. Uh, I mean... Some of these GMO crops, they are sprayed with some really nasty stuff, and it's making its way into our food stream and into the food stream of pollinators. And uh, I'm glad that I'm glad that farmers are going to have the option of growing hemp. That is the nice thing about hemp: how it is grown in the exact opposite way of modern-day commercial industrial agriculture, and how it still has a high carbon sequestration factor so an acre of hemp sequesters a lot of carbon and that's another fun myth legend or fact for everybody to research Um, but it does trap a lot of carbon from the earth's atmosphere and then as those materials uh, go into different product supply chain then that carbon can be trapped and taken out of the atmosphere and as well as the soil cleaning properties, which is another mythical property of the hemp plant or the legendary property of the hemp plant, its ability to phytoremediate uh, dirty soils. Yeah, I think we're going to find people doing that more and more. Uh, now that hemp is legal, we can do some remediation with it, and why not? Who knows? They might come up with some really creative things to do with that hemp that comes from the remediation. Is there any last story about hemp or maybe any thoughts on the future of the industry? Well, I guess I would just say to all the people who are thinking about growing hemp, uh, whether you're a retired farmer or a new farmer or farmer who's been doing it for forever, uh, take a chance and grow an acre of hemp and see what happens. Grow 10 acres of it. See what happens. See how the market 
can help. I mean, I think we've talked about it before, uh, but just a, an acre of hemp could yield way more than 100 acres of uh, grasses or hay or possibly even corn if you're doing silage corn. And that's CBD hemp. Yeah, CBD hemp. Uh, I would discourage you from growing grain hemp if you're thinking about growing CBD hemp because it can make your life uh, challenging if you decide to switch back to CBD. And then that's just because with grain hemp, it's open pollination. And so there's male plants that pollinate the female plants, and then that's why the seeds come. And And then they harvest the seed as the food crop. Yeah, and then you'll for sure have volunteer seed crop grain grain plants popping up uh, for a couple, for a while after 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 you're done with that endeavor. You know, final products are going to get regulated. That that's the reality. But I mean, who knows how that's going to happen? Because I mean, it's not like the FDA is testing turmeric uh, extracts. You know. But as long as the hemp extracts stay on the supplement side, then maybe they won't do anything. And then as soon as it crosses over into the food product, it would be as if you invented a new soda. And then you just happen to put aspirin in that soda. I think that's why the FDA has problems. Because, like, I like. I just hope the FDA has bigger fish to fry than people putting CBD oil in food. How about them letting people put poison in our food and calling it preservatives and not making people test these preservatives to see what they do on humans when they're putting it in our food. Uh, I think that's, that's what I would like the FDA to focus on is uh, stop killing people with poison and spreading cancer. Uh, that's that I would like them to focus on that and let us give people CBD to hopefully make them well and have wellness you hit on one of my next documentary film ideas, which is a film about the food industrial complex and how it came to be in America and how the food isn't necessarily healthy or nutritional. It just has some of the basic things you need. But over long time eating of that food, your skin starts to break down. You start to develop different chronic illnesses diabetes starts to occur because sugars and everything as a preservative that film idea came from the hemp idea because of the fda's such heavy regulation of hemp food but then turning the other way to some of these non-gmo products and some of the reality that i think people don't understand is that when you eat genetically modified food it was genetically modified to take a pesticide And that pesticide is not water-soluble. It's petroleum-based, so it actually stays on the grain through the life of the grain. So when 80% of the soy in America is genetically modified, or maybe that's the world, I forget, it's one or the other of those, then that means the soy flour that you're using has traces of these pesticides in them. And so when you see that non-GMO label at the grocery store, it's actually really important. And when you take it a step further and go, hey, I'm going to remove everything that's not organic out of my life, even like decent organic food that's not, you know, super, super organic, but it's still organic, that kind of food, even that's better for you. 
because your body begins to eat real food again. The test I gave myself the other day in the grocery store, because I was taking this research a little bit deeper, because I'm really thinking about shooting this documentary next. I ate the corn steak for like a week, and then I got a grass-fed flank steak. Completely different experience. Completely different experience. I could taste the grass in that meat. Is I could taste the pasture. It was strange. And maybe it's the Tai Chi. Maybe it's I've been living in Boulder too long. And, and I'm just sensitive to everything from my taste buds to my spirituality. <laughs> but uh, I definitely tasted it. And then the corn, it was almost like corn syrup meat. It was the meat was tender, but at the end of the flavor, it just had this, you know, a whole j- just tasted corny. Yeah, how does it make you feel? I think that's yeah. that's an important one. Is how is it cooked? How does it make you feel? Because it makes you feel like you need to go to sleep, and that's probably not good. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think it's interesting because this American Hemp documentary has shown me a lot about the American food system, kind of what it takes to make a new commodity, and then I was able to reconnect with my friend Andrew. And so I guess that's probably the end of the episode. I feel like that's pretty good, right? Yeah, I think we covered a lot of bases. Yeah, we got some facts. We got some not facts. We got some legendary some myths. legends. And unicorns. We got it all. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was, it was nice. We covered some bases. That's for sure. All right. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of American Filmmaker. We talked to Andrew, and he is a hemp farmer, a hemp consultant, a hemp geneticist working out of Pure Hemp Technology in Fort Lupton, Colorado. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Josh. Uh, I'm excited about the podcast and can't wait to hear more. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Filmmaker. On the upcoming episodes, we're going to interview a composer, hopefully a commercial director, a television director, and maybe even an international Brazilian director working on his first feature, hoping to go into distribution this year. I hope you enjoyed this musical selection. It comes from the current film that I'm working on, this feature hemp documentary, and it's one of the tracks that we're using from the composer Michael J. Deller. He plays in the Budos Band, and he was an instrumental part in Charles Bradley and his Extraordinaires. Thank you, Mike, for your wonderful work. Thank you.